All right, it's good to be back with you this evening. I want to thank you for your prayers. Some of you have been praying that I'd have enough voice for the day. Uh, maybe you're praying for a short sermon this evening, so uh, just praying for a few minutes perhaps, but uh, thank you for praying. Um, again, I don't know exactly what's hit my voice, maybe some, um, some allergies or something like that, but uh, just rejoicing in the Lord. I feel pretty strong right now. I feel like I could go maybe two, three hours, so uh, looking forward to that. I um, want to encourage you to pray about two things uh, before we get into the text of Scripture this evening. If you could uh, continue to pray for us as we search for a worship leader. Uh, tonight after the evening service, I'll be meeting with the worship leader search committee, uh, and uh, we'll be gathering together to start the process. Uh, we have some applications and resumes already. We've got some resource material now for the worship leader search committee, but we'll be doing that this evening after the service, so pray for us. Uh, it's such a delight to be able to have uh, John Coates, uh, Pastor Les, Pastor Paul, people like that who can lead worship. Uh, I'm so thankful for their ministry. It's my prayer uh, for them that while they lead us, they'll actually enjoy leading the worship and worship with us. It's just so many details go into it. Uh, and so throughout the week, it's a joy and a privilege to work with these, these men. Uh, so uh, what we're doing is uh, normally... Uh, John Coates and I will get together uh, Monday or Tuesday, and then we run it by all the pastoral team, you know, the, the worship, the, the, the order of service for the worship services, and we plan them together, but I know a lot of work goes into it, so John, I'm praying that you have strength uh, tonight to, to listen to the sermon, so, yeah. uh, but we're so thankful uh, for them, and um, just want to uh, pray that God would, would lead us to the right man for worship leader, uh, and ultimately, we are praying for gifts and talents, but we're praying for a man who loves Christ and is a man of integrity, a man who loves the word. And so as you're praying, prioritize that for us, that God would direct us to someone who loves him, loves his word, lives a life of integrity, someone who'll be able to lead us in worship. Uh, and then I want to thank you for praying about the Membership Matters class. We had our second meeting today. We had three New people show up today, so I was rejoicing in that. They're all young adult singles, so they added a lot of life and energy to our class. Uh, so we uh, had a great time this morning, but please be praying for us. Uh, next few weeks, I'll be uh, hearing their testimonies and, and uh, hearing uh, what they're counting on as far as uh, salvation goes. And so I always covet your prayers uh, to make sure we make good decisions and wise choices as we uh, work through that with them. So please keep praying for that. We can turn to Mark chapter 4. My goal this evening is a modest goal. I want to finish the chapter. We just have six verses, um, so it shouldn't take us an extremely long amount of time, but, um, but we'll see. We'll see. Uh, Mark chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 35 and go through verse 41. Uh, here we start into a new section. Jesus has been teaching in parables, giving a lot of parabolic information. And uh, this is uh, explaining how different people are going to respond to him. Um, he, uh, this morning, we learned that uh, we should pay close attention to the light that Jesus provides in the parables for the measure we use will be the measure will be given back to us, will be given in proportion to our energy and our diligence in listening to the words of Jesus Christ. And, and even beyond that, we saw that the kingdom uh, of God has humble roots, but it ends up in amazing, bountiful bounty and, and plenty. And so uh, that should be a source of encouragement to us, even if in our existence today, it doesn't seem as if much is going right. It doesn't seem as if uh, things are 
going the way we would want them to. One day soon, the Lord will return, and eventually then he will set up a kingdom, and he will reign and rule on this planet for a thousand years. We look forward to that. Well, after all that parabolic instruction, Jesus starts into a section of miracles. These miracles, I believe, are designed, like the beginning of the book, to demonstrate the authority of Jesus. In these miracles, Jesus, or Mark teaches, that Jesus is authoritative over certain things. He's authoritative over nature, or creation, at the end of chapter 4. He's authoritative over a demonic being. This is a demonic being, perhaps, one um, that he has not even seen the likes of before in Mark's Gospel, in chapters 5, verses 1 through 20. And then he's authoritative over disease and death. And so these miracles will once again show Jesus' authority. Tonight I want to see Jesus' authority over nature in verses 35 through 41. Let me read the text for us. It says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? As we look into this text, we see in the story, we will see Jesus' authority over nature, of the sea and the storm here. And uh, I think it's laid out in six very uh, quick, easy uh, stages. In verses 35 and 36, he starts by giving what I'm going to call the nighttime setting of the story. We won't read those verses again, but what we find out in verses 35 and 36 is that the event, this miracle, is going to take place on the same day that Jesus gave all of the kingdom parables that we've been studying. If you remember, Jesus gave many of these parables from a boat, actually, um, uh, right up next to the shore. And so at the end of the day, while it was turning to evening, Jesus decides with the disciples that they're going to get into the boat and they're going to travel to the other side. Okay? There's one other interesting note Uh, about this evening setting, this nighttime setting, and that is in verse 36. It says that there were other boats who were with him or that were with him. Now, I don't know why that detail is in the story. Uh, And unfortunately, we never really know for sure. Uh, Maybe they'll be able to give testimony to the amazing power of Jesus as well in calming the storm. Perhaps they too will be stuck out on this lake in the midst of the storm. I will say I think it is a tribute to the popularity of Jesus, okay? He, this, this man is so special. People are giving up their livelihood. They're changing their schedules. I can almost imagine a few people, you know, they, they're seeing Jesus and the disciples start to go out into the sea, and so they run to get whatever boats they can. 
And now there's a, there's a fleet of boats kind of following Jesus as he goes across the sea. Well, far from being a peaceful night setting, though, we learn next in verses 37 and 38 that there's a violent storm that occurs. Look at verse 37. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Here I think you get an example of Mark's vivid style okay, as a writer. And it's, it's kind of hard to capture maybe in the English here a bit, although I think it's still pretty vivid. Mark is very abrupt. He's very quick. But uh, the way he describes things are quite interesting. He says the windstorm kind of arises and that the waves were breaking right into the boat so that it was filling up. The, I think the boat was probably a small vessel, uh, probably many boats during this era would be, you know, you could fit 12, 15 people on them or so. And, and many of their boats had low sides on them for fishing. But here's Mark tells the story. Jesus and his disciples are in the boat and the waves are crashing right into the boat, starting to fill it up. But the whole while, Jesus is sleeping on a cushion. He's in a stern, a stern of the ship, asleep. Uh, Jesus is probably tired from a long day of teaching and healings and exorcisms. And so he's tired, but you have this violent storm that's occurring. The violent storm leads to, point three, an urgent request at the end of verse 38. It says, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? So the disciples ask him if he cares whether or not they are all perishing. I think actually in seeing this this question, I think it's a mild form of rebuke. Maybe not very mild, but it's a rebuking question. Don't you care that we are perishing? Now, the word for perishing is a very strong word in the original, and it can be translated destroyed. Jesus, aren't you concerned that we're being destroyed out on this water? That leads to, point four, a mighty intervention in verse 39. Mighty intervention, look at verse 39. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Hereafter, Jesus awakes. He responds in a very unusual manner. He rebukes the wind and he speaks to the sea. Now, I, wanna, I definitely want to draw our attention to a few things about the text here and how it relates to some other texts in the Bible Uh, First, the word rebuke is a word that's not used very often in the Scripture. It means to warn or rebuke strongly. Uh, Now, the the only other times that Jesus has used the word rebuke so far in the gospel uh, have been to describe what he did to unclean spirits who came out of people. He rebuked them. He strongly challenged them. Um, And in chapter one, he rebukes uh, an unclean spirit, and he he then says to be quiet and come out of the victim. So in this scenario, Mark uses that word to describe what Jesus does to the sea. He rebukes the storm, just like he had done the unclean spirits. Then the text says in the same verse that he rebuked the wind, and he says to the sea, which again is an interesting thing here. He's speaking to the sea. He's He's addressing the sea as if the sea 
were a rational being who could hear. You know, imagine someone else pulling out this method to deal with a, a storm. Maybe you've tried it if you were really afraid or something. But you, imagine yelling out to the sea something to be still. But of course, Jesus is different than every other man who's ever lived. And so Jesus rebuking the sea or calling out to the sea will be able to do some uh, very interesting things. And notice what Jesus says to the sea. He says, peace be still. And that reflects two Greek words, peace be still. This could be translated to the sea, Jesus says, muzzle it and be silent. Now, one of the things I want to draw your attention to, one of the most interesting things to me are the parallels between this story and the story that took place in Mark chapter 1. So turn over to Mark 1 for a moment. Uh, In that chapter, in verse 25, Jesus is addressing a man with an unclean spirit. He casts out the unclean spirit in the synagogue at Capernaum. And uh, when Jesus rebukes the demon... He says, verse 25, says, um, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of it. Now, if you remember from months ago or weeks ago, however long it was, when I preached this text, I said, you could translate this a little different way. It could be translated, muzzle it and come out of it. Okay. What's interesting to me is that both the word rebuked and the, word be, the words be silent or muzzle it are the same exact words that Jesus uses with the storm. And so uh, to understand what's going on here, so to the unclean spirits, Jesus rebukes them and he says, muzzle it. To the storm, Jesus rebukes it and he says, muzzle it. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, I, I wonder one thing about the storm in Mark chapter four, and you can go back there for a moment. Uh, Perhaps I'll never find out the heaven. But I wonder if this is not just any normal kind of storm that's appearing on the lake of the Sea of Galilee. I want to suggest that it could be possible that the storm is a satanically or demonically induced storm. If you got those parallels I just described to you. And then what was very interesting to me as I've been reading through this, because I started thinking that way as I did a word study. Okay, I got rebuked. You got muzzle it. He, he, he deals with both things that way. But then look at chapter five, verse one. Right after the, the miracle, on the other side, it says they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him a man from the tombs, or out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Look at verse nine. And Jesus asked this man, or the spirit, what is your name? He replied, my, my name is Legion, for we are many. This man who meets Jesus on the edge of the water is filled with perhaps something like a thousand demonic beings. And so as I consider this storm on the sea, I think it's very interesting that as Jesus is performing this miracle, there's a man filled with demonic spirits on the edge of the water waiting for him to rise. Immediately, he arrives. And so I want to suggest that perhaps this storm is a little, little bit worse of a storm than many of us may have experienced in our days. At the very least, Jesus is addressing a raging storm as a force 
threatening him and his disciples. And so just like the unclean spirits were forced to obey him, as soon as Jesus addresses the storm, the storm obeys him and peace comes. Here the authoritative son of God is something different. He's something different than anyone else who's ever existed. He is God. This reminds me of God's sovereign hand over nature. Now, I've been doing another study along the way with Mark. I've been preparing for the fall for our Wednesday night Bible studies. Uh, On Wednesday nights, I'm going to be going through the book of Acts, teaching uh, whoever attends the adult prayer meetings, uh, teaching you how to study your Bible from the book of Acts. And so I've just been reading through and reading through the book of Acts. So I've been reading through the book of Acts. One of the things that I've seen is God's sovereign power over the forces of nature on display. And so just for three or four minutes, I want to ask you to turn to Acts and let me kind of whet your appetite for that study. And then whet your appetite for the book of Acts. Um, I think the book of Acts is a, it's, it's a, it's the true story of the spread of the church of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to Rome. It's a book that covers about 30 years. And the gospel makes tremendous inroads into uh, the, the, uh, the, the known world at that time. And uh, one of the questions I think a reader might have with Acts is, how in the world could this be possible? I mean, how could the gospel get from Jerusalem through all these cities in Greek and, and Macedonia, through all of Asia Minor, and get to Rome? I mean, how is that possible And one of the answers that you will see in the book of Acts is it's possible because of the sovereign plan and the power of God. And just reading through the book of Acts recently, I found at least, don't, now when I say the number, don't get nervous because we're not going to go through every one tonight, okay? Uh, 12 times where God overcomes forces of nature to intervene so that the gospel of Jesus Christ or the mission of Jesus Christ would be spread to the ends of the earth. Okay, now I'm just going to give you a few of these. In Acts chapter 1, look at verse 9 here. uh, Jesus overcomes gravity. Acts 1 verse 9, "And, And when he had said these things and they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. I mean, there's other miraculous things going on there as well, but he overcomes gravity. In the same Chapter down in verse 26, they're casting lots for the replacement of Judas Iscariot. And here, Jesus, or God, over, or intervenes uh, into the laws of, silent, uh, of science, and he causes the lot to, to fall in the way it should. Look at Acts one twenty six, And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, sometimes we might think that, well, this is just a chance thing. And, you know, I, you know, when we talk about, like, God's sovereign plan and, like, a lot being cast or, like, a, a coin being flipped, I mean, did God really cause it to do that? But then I think of a text in Proverbs I learned when I was a little kid, Proverbs 16.33. Have you ever seen that verse? Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You understand what that verse is saying? Okay, to use a modern parallel, it's like flipping a coin. Who decides how that coin is going to land? 
God decides. It's every decision. I remember uh, one scholar that I really respect, his name is Elvin McLean. He says, not even one molecule can fly off wildly outside of the control of God in our universe. And so uh, here I see in the book of Acts, God uh, working through the laws of science in uh, the casting of a lot to get to Matthias. Uh, in chapter 11, we won't turn there, but he, he uses a famine. God sends a famine and uses a famine for uh, a, a gift that he's going to distribute later through the churches, uh, Gentile churches to Jerusalem. But turn to Acts chapter 12 and verse 10. Let me just show you another one. I mean, the book is filled with God overcoming or using the forces of nature for his own will in his own way. Acts 12, verse 10. Here, you see God's control over an iron gate. Acts 12, verse 10, it says, when they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city and it opened for them of its own accord and they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. This is when Peter is being delivered by an angel. Remember, people are, believers are beseeching for the release of Peter and he comes to an iron gate and it just opens of its own accord. Who do you think is sovereign over that? Go to Acts chapter 16. I'll show you one more. I mean, as I said, I, I found 12. You perhaps could find more. Acts chapter 16 and uh, verses 25 and 26. You know what happens in Acts 16? Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi. And as they were there, verses 25 and 26, it says, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors swung open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And so all you have to do is start reading through just about any book of the Bible. You read through the book of Acts and you will see that God is sovereign over the forces of nature. Here sending an earthquake so that the prison doors would be shaken and open and Paul and Silas could potentially be released. Again, throughout the book of Acts, I see God sovereign over lights. He's sovereign over the wind. He's so sovereign over the sea. He's sovereign over snakes and what they will and won't do in the book of Acts. You see the sovereign hand of God working in and through and over the forces of nature for his own glory and for the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as we go back to the book of Mark and we consider Jesus, it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus as well has this sovereign power to overcome the forces of nature. He can say to a storm, muzzle it and be at peace. And it does. And so as we go through this story, we've seen the nighttime setting, the violent storm, the urgent request, the mighty intervention by Jesus. And then just quickly near the end here, we see Two more points, verse 40, the convicting questions that Jesus asks. He says to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Here Jesus asks his disciples, why are you so afraid? I think this question could be translated, why are you so cowardly? The word afraid or cowardly is, is not used 
very often in the scripture, the only time it's not used in this narrative, it's used in the book of Revelation when it describes those who will be thrown into the lake of fire. There's a, there's a list of about seven different descriptions, fornicators, you know, immoral people, idolaters, and cowardly people. And I think the reason that cowardly people are thrown into the lake of fire is because this attribute is the opposite of faith. It's the opposite of faith. They don't have faith. They have cowardly fear. And so Jesus asked this second question, uh, have you still no faith? Despite all that they had seen, they were powerless against the storm. They were cowardly. And so Jesus asked them, could it be possible that you still have no faith? And uh, actually this word faith starts an important theme through the rest of this section. There are these different ways Jesus is authoritative and he's going to keep asking questions about faith later on or making statements so that in chapter 5, if you look at verse 34, verse 34, when he's healing a woman, he says, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And then a little bit farther down in verse 36, but, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And so as we're going to discuss and consider, you know, why are these miracle stories here? They're here to demonstrate that Jesus is authoritative, and they're actually also supposed to push the reader toward demonstrating not fear, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus asks his disciples these questions, which demonstrate that their faith is at least deficient. It's lagging behind. They're not trusting, not putting practical trust in Jesus in this boat. And that leads finally in verse 41 to the amazed response of the disciples. It says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? So after pondering these questions and Christ's work on the sea, the disciples respond with great fear. This fear is different than the fear they had before. This is a word for reverence or awe. They're filled with wonder at who Jesus is. So that they, they ask, who is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. I think this response, as I consider it here, as we, clue, as we close here, is just an amazing response from experienced Galilean fishermen. Many of them, of course, were fishermen. They'd been on the sea many times. They'd been on this lake before. But they had never seen anything like this done on the water before. The storm immediately ceasing. And so they ask, who is this? What type of person is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? As we go through these, these, these miracle stories, I think we will be again reminded of the true power and authority of Jesus. And I trust that as we do so, that God will give us a fresh perspective of who Christ is. 
that he will remind us of the sovereign ability and power of Jesus. So many times we are overcome and overwhelmed with events in our lives or challenges that we face. But in this narrative, in this story, we're reminded that we serve a very different type of person. One whom even the wind and the sea obey his voice. Uh, Let's go to the Lord and ask him to help us this week as we reflect upon Christ together. Father, as we close this evening, I pray that you would give us this fresh perspective of who Christ is. Of course, Father, I cannot recreate the events of a violent storm, of the fear of death, and of Jesus' miraculous intervention where he rebukes winds and sea. But Father, I would pray that in our spirit, as we reflect upon this, that you would give us faith to believe it to be true, but faith that this Jesus who performed this miracle can not only do that in the first century, he can help us overcome obstacles or challenges in our lives as well. God, I pray that you would fill us again afresh with wonder as we consider Jesus this week and we consider how he might help us in the struggles and battles in which we face. In Jesus' name I would pray, amen.